Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It's great to see you this morning. My name's Otto Ramos. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's my great privilege to welcome you. Welcome to those of you joining us online. If this is one of your first times joining us, we want to express a very special welcome to you and invite you to learn more if you'd like to do that. And you can do that in one of a couple of ways. You can go to our website at vlchurch.com and click on the banner that says, Are You New Here? And there's a form that pops up. Once you click on that banner, complete that form, and that'll come straight to me, and we'll connect with you sometime this week. But indeed, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. I do have a few reminders and announcements for you today, the first of which is that we are going to have our next installment of Growth Track uh, to start next Sunday. So if you are relatively new to Victory Life Church and you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we believe and how you can grow here in your faith, this is a great class for you. It's a four-week series. Once again, it starts next Sunday, and we'd love to have you. So if you'd like to learn more, we invite you to uh, register for Growth Track. You can do it online by going to vlchurch.com and click on the banner that says Growth Track, and uh, we'd love to, love to see you there next Sunday. Also, I have another announcement to remind you about our annual church meeting. It's happening tomorrow night. We have this every year to give you, give you an update on how the resources that we have here at Victory Life Church are used to lift up and honor the name of Jesus. And so if you'd like to join us tomorrow night, it's going to start at 7 p.m. And uh, the annual meeting is the time in which we elect new board members, and we have three up for nom- nomination this year. And they go, they're running unopposed, uh, but we're still offering voting. We have absentee voting this morning after first service and second service in room 304. So if you'd like to cast your vote, you can certainly do that. We'll also have voting tomorrow night right before the annual meeting at 6.30 p.m. But if you'd like to join us and learn more about how God continues to bless Victory Life Church, we invite you to attend the meeting uh, tomorrow night at 7 p.m. here in the North Sanctuary. And one more announcement, and it's just an encouragement for you to save the date. We're going to have our next worship night known as Pursue Night. Uh, give me a thumbs up if you've been to one of these. These are awesome. Our next one's going to happen in a couple of weeks on Friday, March 10th at 6.30 p.m. And as always, as is our custom, food and fellowship will follow. And it's my understanding that's, that's right around the time when all the basketball tournaments start with all the conference championships at the college level, and then the MAC tournament will ensue thereafter. So to kind of launch all of this stuff and to just have some good fellowship together, even if you're not into basketball, we're going to have some chicken wings. Do you like chicken wings? Um, And they're going to be made here. Pastor Matt says that he used to make these with his young adults back in the day, and he knows how to do it. And so if you like chicken wings of all sorts and flavors, we invite you to just come and have a good time. But first and foremost, we're gathering together to seek the Lord together on Friday, March 10th. We hope that you'll save the date and join us on that particular evening. Well, that's all I have this morning in the way of announcements. If if you have come today to worship the Lord Jesus with your tithes and offerings, you can do that in a couple of different ways. You can give online, you can give via text, or you can give as you exit the sanctuary this morning. But indeed, thank you for worshiping the Lord with your tithes and offerings. Can I ask you to stand this morning? And as you do, let's bow for a word of prayer as we enter into worship together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come into this place because we believe that when we gather together as your believers, we believe that you like to live in places like this. And so therefore, we believe that we will encounter you by being here this morning. And I pray, God, that you would give us sensitive hearts so that we can sense your presence in our midst and respond to it. And as we leave this place today, may we leave changed individuals because we encountered you. We ask this and pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 We're just going to worship the Lord together. Hope you come to praise him today. We're here to worship and honor him.
Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes or I lift my countenance to the hills. From where does my help come from? But my help comes from the Lord. And I believe that this morning. I believe when I'm tempted to sin, when temptation comes my way, my help comes from the Lord. I believe that when I'm trying to shine my light in the workplace, my help comes from the Lord. I believe that when I'm trying to live a godly lifestyle among my family, that the only place my help can come from is from the Lord. So I look to you today, Jesus. You are my help. I trust in you. I forget not all your benefits today, but I cling to them, and I worship you for them. Amen. My soul forget not all his benefits. How his light has shone through darker days and this he has been faithful. He's always faithful. And even as I'm walking through the wilderness, standing in the valley, I remember this. He has been faithful, he's always faithful. I know where my help comes from, my help comes from the Lord. Yeah, I know where my help comes from, my help comes from the Lord. And my confidence remains in the name above all names. Yeah, I know where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. So I won't fear 
healer. You're our savior. You are good. You are faithful. You are holy. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name.
Lord Jesus, we stand here today having fallen from you, but having been redeemed by Christ, by the Savior, the Savior of sinners. Lord Jesus, we thank you today that you came for us. No greater act of holiness has ever been done than the Savior of the world coming to earth to die on a cross for the sins of fallen man. Lord Jesus, we love you today. Allow our hearts, our spirits, our souls to be stirred by the truth of the gospel. For you are our Savior and our soon returning King. Thanks and praise be unto your name today. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Well, welcome once again to Victory Life today. I'm Pastor Matt. We're so glad to see you all here worshiping with us today. At this time, young disciples, you may be dismissed to head on down the hall. And older disciples, we are going to be in Acts chapter 17 today. So if you have your Bibles or you have your Bible on your phone, feel free to turn on over to Acts chapter 17. We are in, uh, deep in, a series called Into the World, 
which is Lessons in Light Shining from the Apostle Paul. He was the greatest evangelist that we know about in the scriptures, and therefore we have the opportunity to learn a ton from him as we survey his missionary journeys. And we've made our way into the dead center of the second missionary journey. Paul is making his way through the north of Greece and down through the south of Greece. We're going to land in Athens today, one of those important cities of the ancient world. Lots to learn from Paul this morning. I was walking out of my favorite grocery store the other day, and I heard a lady on the phone, and she was angry, bitter at life, as I like to say. She was not having a good time on the phone. And I didn't catch everything that she was screaming into her phone, didn't catch it all. But what I did catch made me stop for just a minute and question all of my Christian convictions. She said, I've told you before, I don't have any butter. And I thought, she's screaming about butter? And I, so when I say question my Christian convictions, it occurred to me, should I, should I turn an offer to go into the store and buy her butter? Like, is the butter the issue? Is there a greater issue? I'm not sure, but I never heard anybody screaming into their phone about butter before. I think we would all agree on some level that we live in a very upset culture. People are more frustrated, more upset, more angry than I can ever remember in my lifetime. And I'm not the, uh, I'm not the guy that's like, it's the worst that it's ever been in humanity. I, boy, I look at some of the, the time periods of the scriptures and I thank God I live today. I just got to be honest. But in terms of just noticing an uptick in the nature of people being upset regularly, I've noticed. I've noticed a little bit. Whether they're behind you in the car and they don't even give you a millisecond to accelerate once the light turns green before they're laying on the horn or they're standing outside the grocery store screaming at somebody about butter. We're full of angst. We're full of upset. And I've noticed that this is true within the church as well. We're all friendly and cool with one another in here. We have pastries together. We have coffee to keep us happy. We're, we're pretty, pretty good to one another inside the church, but church people can be just as upset as the world. In fact, the world is kind of based on keeping us upset in some ways, at least as far as some of the media and some of the uh, news organizations are concerned. If they can keep you upset, they can keep you clicking. And if they can keep you clicking, they can make money, and therefore there's this culture of upset. Well, upset's not necessarily always a bad thing. Sometimes if the upset is for God and his purposes, it can be used for great things. But what I've noticed within the church, if I may be so bold, is to say that within the church we sometimes can get very upset at the things that the enemy would have us be upset about. But we don't get very upset at the things that would upset the Lord. We, we would get very upset in terms of what the enemy would like us to be focused on, but we, we don't necessarily get upset at the things that make a difference for the kingdom of God. Well, we're going to see a story today about an upset Apostle Paul. He's ticked. He's, 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 he's stirred up, and he's going to get stirred up for things for God, not stirred up because of what he read on social media or what he read in the news, he gets stirred up by what he sees with his own eyes, what he's experiencing in the world around him, and that upset leads to great things because he's upset for the right reasons. I want to talk to you about that upset today, and I want to show you five things that Paul does because of this upset that he experiences when he gets to Athens. But my hope is by the end of our time together today that you would be evaluating what gets me all geared up. What grinds my gears? What gets me frustrated? Do I get frustrated about that which the Lord would be frustrated about? And can God use what gets stirred in my spirit for his kingdom and his glory? Maybe we could even get to the point where some of us would commit to the idea that I'm not going to get my spirit stirred up unless it's for the Lord. Let's see what happens with the Apostle Paul here in Athens. This is a bit of a long story. I'm going to break it up into four bite-sized pieces for us. We'll be reading the scriptures to, until the very end here so that we don't take one big uh, swath of scripture and miss a ton of it. All right. So we're going to be in verse 16 of chapter 17 of Acts, dead center of the second missionary journey. Paul going on his own to Athens because he's been kicked out of Berea. His ministry associates are remaining to complete the work there. Verse 16, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Did you see the upset there? 
And you see the upset. He was, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the, mar- catch this, in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be preaching foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, that's Mars Hill, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend all their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now I want to make mention of some things that we're going to have to rely upon what we've learned already in this series to kind of grab hold of. Paul's ministry mode was to spend his time in the synagogue, try to convert the diaspora, the dispersed Jews who lived there, He would then move on to the God-fearers, or in this case, the devout persons, or the God-worshippers. These were Gentiles who were spending their time in the synagogue, and they believed in the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh God, our God, I am that I am God, existence himself. They, They believed in the God of the Old Testament, and he would present to them that the Savior Jesus had come, and then it would spread out from there. That was Paul's ministry mode. Paul's ministry mode takes on a very new dimension here in Athens, something we haven't seen him do before. He is going to engage in an action that he has not yet engaged in. Did you catch it? He goes to the synagogue, he ministers among the Jews and the devout persons, and then he goes to the marketplace and he talks to anybody who he can talk to what I like to call cold call evangelism, the very type of evangelism that you will avoid with every bit of your being. Me too, right? I'm going to go walk up to strangers and talk to them about Jesus. That's what Paul was doing. And that's what we're going to do today. So everybody get your coats. No, that's not what we're going to do. And, you know, actually, this has been, in my mind, something that can be overemphasized at times, A lot of times churches, that's the one way that they do evangelism. They give you a book or they give you a presentation to make, and then you make it to whomever and wherever, and that's the one presentation of the gospel. We're going to see today Paul presents the gospel to different people in different ways using wisdom. But it's neat that Paul is being stretched. He's doing something that he is not used to doing. He's going outside of the synagogues and talking to a bunch of Gentiles about Jesus who have absolutely no basis. They call him a babbler. They say, you got strange things coming to our ears. They have no context for Jesus, but he's doing it anyways. Why? Because his spirit was provoked that the city was full of idols. He's upset. He gets to Athens, and he's seen idols in every city. He's seen shrines in every city. I mean, he lived in the pagan world. But for some reason, the amount of shrines, the amount of idolatry, the amount of just just this, this paganism really gets to him in Athens. It provokes his spirit, says the scriptures. And the upset produces action. He's upset at the state of Athens. Now, was he upset because he was a strict monotheist? Maybe. Was he upset that they were misrepresenting the God of the universe? Probably. Was he upset that that the idolatrous world is tied to the demonic world, and so he probably felt a huge demonic presence in Athens? Absolutely. But there's also something that we're going to get to when we get to the very end of this passage today that I think is the key reason he's upset. But either way, his upset, it produces action. Not only does he go to the synagogue, not only does he talk to the Jews, not only does he talk to the devout God-fearers, but now he's trying to talk to whomever Well, listen, he goes to the marketplace day after day. He would have encountered three different types of people in this marketplace. These pagan idolaters, right? These these polytheistic pagans of Athens. He would have encountered them, people who believed that they needed to keep the gods happy with them in order to receive some type of reward. People would be burning incense, burning this, burning that, sacrificing that, giving that, kneeling here, praying there, genuflecting here. These people who would have had all of these different ways in which they were trying to appease the gods, uh, low, or middle, lowercase g, the gods, they would have been people who were, were always concerned 
about where they stood with the gods, because you could never please all the gods. So you got to pick a few and try to please some and hope that you picked right. So he's got these polytheistic pagans that he's trying to minister to. But Luke writes that he's also confronted by who? The Epicureans and the Stoics, the learned people of Athens. Now, the Epicureans, for just to be as simple as possible, believed that the highest good in life was pleasure. They weren't quite hedonists, but because, because they, they did preach that, that you should, if you really want to enjoy the pleasures of life, you shouldn't go overboard, because if you go overboard, then life won't be pleasurable anymore. But, but that was the highest good. They preached that the gods didn't really care about you. They believed in the gods, so they don't care about you. And when you die, there is no afterlife. There's nothing to look forward to. So make the most of this life. Have fun. Now, there's Epicureans sitting here right now. You are in church. You would say, I have a general affinity to Jesus, but you live your life as an Epicurean. You're trying to knock everything off your bucket list. You're trying to make life as pleasurable and with the least pain as possible. And, and if stirring in a little Jesus makes it a little more peaceful and memorable for you, then you've stirred in some Jesus. So there's Epicureans in every, in every church. It's just a true story of the wheat and the tares. Jesus told us it would be so. There's also the Stoics that are confronting Paul. The Stoics, for lack of a better term, are Jedi. They, they believe in the force. God is all around us in the trees and in the plants and in the dirt. And you just need to stop feeling emotion. You need to stop loving. You need to stop fearing. You need to just be Stoic. Comes into our language today, right? And do not be affected by anything. And when you die, you will disapparate into the force once more. There is no personal afterlife. So, you know, Obi-Wan doesn't get to come back and guide Luke. You are just a blade of grass, some dirt, and a beetle. All right? Those are the Stoics. So we get upset when we begin to share the gospel with people, and we have one objection, don't we? Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to go to church. Uh, my mom was hurt in church. Oh, gosh, what do I do with that? No, I don't know if I, I, I want to go to church. Christians are fill in the blank. Oh, no, I don't know if I believe in Jesus. I have trouble with this idea that somebody had risen from the dead. And we, we get all upset when there's like one objection to our faith. Oh, they'll never be saved. Paul has people coming from all different walks who are confronting him in this marketplace, and they're calling him a babbler. They're saying he's just cherry-picking things from all over different religions and different philosophies and trying to put them together. That's the idea of a babbler in the Greek. He's just picking stuff from all over the place and trying to sound intelligent. So they're mocking him by calling him a babbler, and he's got, having people coming from all different walks, and he's having to have these conversations with them. And, and, and at least on the front end, him being called a babbler and them saying, you've got strange things you're saying, Paul, that doesn't seem to be a positive development. All right, But there Paul is anyways. The upset has produced action. He's speaking to people in the marketplace. But then we see something happen. The upset provided opportunity. Some people who were part of the educated folks of Athens invited him to come and present his stuff, his gospel, as he would call it, up on Mars Hill. That was the place where all the learned folks would go and listen to new philosophies or old philosophies reworked. And so Paul gets an invitation to go up to Mars Hill primarily because the upset produced action that allowed him to interact with people in a marketplace that he otherwise would not have interacted with and been given this invitation. Do you see how God arranges the steps? Paul is called a babbler. He's not making any headway. We don't see anybody in the marketplace that gets saved. Did you see anybody get saved in the marketplace when you read it? I didn't see anybody get saved. Anybody repent in the marketplace? Not according to Luke. I think Luke would have wrote if somebody had repented. People call him a babbler. They call him strange. But then they invite him to come and present his gospel up on Mars Hill to an audience that would have been large. So the, the, the upset provided an opportunity for Paul because Paul took action. Now, we like to have this old Christian word once in a while called the unction, right? The Holy Spirit, you know, just, just gets at you in church, and then he gives you an unction. He gives you something you need to do. You just got to do it because you're stirred up, and you're, you're emotional, and you're ready to go. Well, Paul does that by going to the marketplace, but it doesn't look like it's going well until such time as they say, why don't you come and tell us more? And that's where we're going to pick up the next part of the story in verse 22. Paul Standing in the midst of Mars Hill said, 
Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. Do you see that? He's, he's provoked because of the idols. He's stirred up. He's upset. But that doesn't mean he becomes a meanie, right? He's smart. He's wise. He, he, he kind of backhandedly compliments them to start his sermon. And that's what I'm doing here. I'm just warming you up before I step, stomp on your toes. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek and find God, perhaps feeling their way towards him. Yet he's not actually far off from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Last verse. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Woo! That's really good. He th- I think he thought that out before presenting it. Right? He, 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 I mean, rhetorically speaking. Rhetoric, the art of using persuasive language. Rhetorically speaking, everything he does here is just just brilliant. The guy is an all-star. That's why we're reading Paul. We have lessons to learn from him. But before we get to the rhetoric, we have to understand that these are fighting words. Paul specifically contradicts their beliefs. All of their beliefs. He contradicts the Stoics' beliefs. He contradicts the Epicureans' beliefs. He contradicts the pagan philosophers' beliefs and the pagan polytheists. And if I may be so bold, because Aristotle still had a hold at this time in history, he he contradicts Aristotle too. See, the upset in Paul, the, the provoking of his spirit, the unction that he felt spurs a challenge to the beliefs of others. He goes for it here. He doesn't say, oh, okay, well, if that's what you believe, I I guess I'm cool with that. He says, well, let me present what I believe. I just just talked to a gal in the church the other day. She she had gone through the workshop, and she learned the principles of the workshop, and she said, so so every day at work, I just ask my my friends questions about their life and about their, their... their, their, their homes, and about, about eventually, once we build up a friendship, about their beliefs. And she says, so I, I, I presented these questions to my Hindu friend, or my lapsed Hindu friend, and he began to share with me about his beliefs. And once he had shared all of his beliefs, this hodgepodge of beliefs, as I mentioned, he was a, a lapsed Hindu, was raised Hindu, but doesn't really practice anymore. You know what happened? He didn't ask her a question back. She listened the whole time about his beliefs and where he's at and where he's at with God. And he didn't say, how about you? He did not even engage in the social nicety of returning the favor of the question. So you know what she did? She said, well, let me tell you what I believe. (laughs) And told him about Jesus. Sometimes you just got to present a challenge, right? You got to just go for it. If he's allowed to talk about his lapsed Hinduism, she's allowed to talk about Jesus, right? And she shared the gospel with him. And then he went back to work, because that was as far as the conversation went. She goes, but I'm not done. She said, I'm not done. I'm going to share more with that fella, right? He's challenging the beliefs of all these people. To the pagan polytheists, he says, no, God is one. There's one God. There's one creator. Come on, you know this. You can't serve a a little silver statue and call that God. That's Goofyville, you know? He's just going for it. He he actually believes he's right. Isn't that crazy? 
You're not allowed to believe that. Did you know that? It's 21st century. You're not allowed to believe you're right. You're only allowed to believe your truth. I'm being sarcastic. No, he believes he's right. He believes that what can be known about God has already been revealed. You guys want to take a little bit of a sidebar journey for just a minute? Turn over to Romans chapter 1. Just, just, let's hop over to Romans. Let's look at the theology of Paul. Let's see why Paul believes that he can preach these things to the Athenians to any effect. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 say this. Paul explaining his gospel to the Romans. For what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking about the unbeliever. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they're clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. So the non-believer is without excuse. Paul's saying the things that we appeal to people about regarding our faith can be seen in nature. They can be seen in the cosmos. They could be seen, and he didn't know the concept of DNA, but, but the Bible certainly understood God knitting us in our inmost being. The concept of, of, of the writing of our DNA, he, he knit me together in my inmost being, right? He, he, he's saying that, that, that folks who are out in the world have deep in their spirit evidentiary facts I guess that's probably redundant that allow them to believe our message if they'd open their heart to it so Paul just goes ahead and challenged their beliefs on the basis of the idea that he's right that he's right the upset produces a challenge to the beliefs of others to the Epicureans and he's going to get them in just a minute he's going to tell them to repent to the Epicureans he's saying listen no no, in, in him we live and move and have our being. That means that you are designed to be in relationship to him. He's not aloof. He's not ignoring you. In him we live and move and have our beings. And you know where that's found in scripture? It's a trick question. There's allusions to that in scripture. But Paul's quoting their poets to them. He's quoting their philosophers to them. He's using what the theologians would call general revelation to make the appeal. The stuff that all of us can understand about God and the reality of God. He says to the Epicureans, no, God is personal. He wants relationship with you if you'd only reach out and find him. The Stoics the same way, no, there is not the force. God is not in the blade of grass. He created all people. In him they live and move and have their being. He gave us everything. Everything that's been created is from him. He's telling the Stoics, no, no, not the force, him. To the Aristotelians, he's saying, no, not the unmoved mover, no, the moved mover. The one who cares about you, the one who wants you to reach out and find him, that's the God of the universe. He challenges all of their beliefs because his spirit is provoked within him. We, we most of us, most of us, don't like getting into conflict. We don't like challenging the beliefs of others. And for the people who do like getting in conflict and, and challenging the beliefs of others, we try to avoid you, you know? <laughs> You're hard to be around sometimes. But I want to say this, and, and I'm just joking about personalities for a minute, but I just want to say this. If we really are going to share the gospel with people, we're going to challenge their beliefs. So is our spirit provoked enough within us that we'd be willing to take that risk? Paul realizes that everybody he speaks to on that hill that day, he has the possibility of alienating with the truth. But he speaks it anyhow. Because it's the way, and it's the truth, and it's the life. That's what he's got right there. Now, we talked about Paul being wise, Paul being rhetorically wise. Paul does so many things here that are really, really good. The upset in Paul, and I want you to get this for those of you who are hot-tempered, the, the upset produces thoughtfulness and wisdom, not flailing about in anger. Did you read what he said? It produced thoughtfulness and it produced wisdom. First, let's think about his approach. First, he's, he's kind to them. He doesn't call them a bunch of idiots to start his thing. How can you believe that? That's just dumb. He says, I see that you're very religious. 
He's saying, I see that you, you have a desire to know God in, on some level, to know the truth on some level. And then he gives them one of the greatest hooks in all of Scripture. He, he piques their interest by saying, I noticed a shrine to an unknown God. He hooks them. The rhetoric is brilliant here. Once again, if you go to the workshop, that's our tell-the-story element. We, we believe that every Christian should be actively evangelizing on a personal level. Join the story. Live the story. That means our community together. And then tell the story. We, we, we designed the workshop so that you would have an opportunity to think thoughts, right? Wizard of Oz, think thoughts about how you can present the gospel in multiple places and in multiple ways. He thinks before he gets there, you know what, I'm going to get them with that unknown God. That, that, that'll preach right there. He thinks about it. It's thoughtful. It's wise. He talks about this unknown God. And as he challenges their beliefs, he does so brilliantly. Because the scholars tell us, people that are far smarter than me and read a lot more than I do, they tell me that Paul quotes or alludes to if not six, at least four of their own poets and philosophers. He uses their own concepts to prove the truth of his gospel. According to the scholars, people who read a lot more ancient Greek than I do, Paul quotes or alludes to Euripides, Plato, Aristobulus, Eratus, Cleanthes, and Epimenides. None of those are diseases. Those are all poets or philosophers. Paul is so engaged with where the Athenians are at that his thoughtful approach in, in taking this tack of general revelation and what can be known about God is clearly seen that he goes ahead and he quotes their own poets as he's quoting Isaiah 66 and Psalm chapter 50. He quotes the Bible and he quotes exactly where he was at, where they are at. Isn't that cool? I mean, I was just listening to the sing to uh, CD as I was driving around with my kids yesterday. Sing to. And there was a song by U2 on there. And I listened to the second verse and I thought, that'll preach. That'll preach. Thanks, Bono. Right? I was listening to that verse and thought, that's what people have listened to. Everybody's heard this song. They might not know the verse, but if you, if you listen to that verse, that'll preach. Is that the whole truth? No! But is it can, can, is it part of what we can, we can establish as what is clearly seen? Yes. It's called general revelation, folks. Now, I know that some of your youth pastors told you you are never allowed to listen to secular music. And you're not. And I say this like this because they are the poets of the modern age. Are they not? They are the poets of the modern age. So... I would not encourage you parents to you know, send your, your kids to certain concerts or to listen to certain artists. But honestly, it would not be the most horrible thing in the world for you adults to hear what they're saying on the radio now and again. Paul certainly was responding to what he heard on the radio by quoting their poets and quoting their philosophers. Okay? Now, teenagers... If your parents look at you when you leave and say, you will not be listening to secular music, I agree with them wholeheartedly because they're your parents and you honor and respect them. And I'm not going to tell people how to parent. What I'm trying to say is it's not the worst thing in the world to know what's going on in the world so long as you don't buy into what's going on in the world. Is that okay? Is that okay? And, and, and I know I'm going to get an email about this. I wish I wouldn't have said it. Anyhow! Here come. So, some of you are writing the email in your mind right now. <laughs> Pastor Matt, we raised our kids not to listen to secular music. I, I, just, just please. I'm not saying they have to listen to it. I'm saying for the evangelist it might be an option to try to find out what's going on out in the world. So this upset of Paul's produces an opportunity. And then as we learned weeks ago, he makes an appeal. He makes an appeal. And we're going to find out why he's so upset before the end of this sermon. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day which he, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
This is why Paul's concerned. Because Paul believes in the judgment. And as he walked into Athens, he thought if ever a place was worthy of judgment, it would be here. They have misrepresented and mis, uh, misappropriated God. And they have embraced demonic idolatry rather than their creator. And they're in trouble with the Lord. The times of ignorance are no longer going to be overlooked. And I'm concerned about the culture here in Athens. This culture is so ungodly that they need to hear about Jesus. So I'll go to the marketplace. I'll go preach a well-rehearsed, well-researched sermon on Mars Hill because they need to know Jesus who will one day stand in judgment over them. If ever there was an idolatrous place, it is here. If ever there was a place of ignorance, it is here. And therefore, my upset needs to result in preaching Jesus because my upset is prompted by the reality of judgment. Jesus is coming to judge. He came first to save. Now he's coming to judge. That's what he's preaching to the Athenians. Interestingly enough, Paul never mentions the cross in this sermon. He never mentions the blood. He never mentions atonement, does he? No. Here comes the next email. You just told us to preach the gospel without the cross. No, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. They said, what you're presenting is strange to our ears. So his approach to them was unique because of where they were at. And he still preaches the two hardest parts of the gospel, doesn't he? Judgment is coming, so you need to repent. God's not okay with what we've done with our freedoms, so you need to turn back to God. And he's provided a way of escape by means of Jesus. He preaches Jesus and the resurrection to these groups. Jesus and the resurrection. Because if a man has defeated death, he is the one through whom God is going to bring eternity to a close, or this age to a close. If a man has truly lived life as God has intended, which is the reason for the resurrection, if someone has truly lived life as God has intended, then this age is coming to a close, and that man will be the one through whom he judges the world. A unique approach. In, in fact, I would venture to say that, that it would be odd if many of us had ever used this approach in sharing the gospel. But it is an approach that bears fruit. Let's look at the fourth and final portion of this section of Scripture, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So let's just follow the upset for just a minute. The upset produces action. He goes to the marketplace. The marketplace produces the opportunity the opportunity spurs a challenge to the beliefs of others, but the challenge was thoughtful and it was wise. It wasn't flailing and violent. And it was prompted by the reality of judgment, right? That, 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 that God is not going to forever allow us to live in this ignorance and sin. And there were results. Some mocked. Some said, yeah, we can talk more. That's interesting. And some believed. Some believed. You see, I wish that we could have our spirit stirred in such a way when we come to church that it produced action outside of this place. And that action, which was, which was prompted by the idea that this world's not going to last forever, would provide us opportunities to thoughtfully share our faith with other people if we could just get stirred up in here, if we could just open our hearts to God, not maybe just in an upset, but, but maybe, maybe that opens our hearts to the place where we can receive 
what that, that other word, that unction, that the Holy Spirit can spur us to action because we've had an emotional response to what's going on either in culture or an emotional response to what's happening in the doors of the church. Either one can give us a call to action. Folks, I, I tell you, I, I, I got into this conversation with another person this week and they were telling me just how upset they were about the state of the culture. And I said, you know, I'm preaching the sermon on Sunday about how that upset should produce action for the sake of the kingdom. And they said, why are you trying to convict me? And I said, I was just talking. You know, I, that was not my goal. We are just having a conversation, you know. It's not my goal. I was just telling you what I was preaching on Sunday. I don't provide conviction. The Holy Spirit does that. But folks, if you're one that complains regularly about the state of the culture, you need to allow your heart to be opened in this place so that God can spur action with and for you out of this place. You have to allow your heart to be stirred. You have to allow God to move in so that he can take that upset and turn it into godly action. And I know sometimes, maybe especially in this place at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, you may feel us really tugging on you, trying to, to get you into an emotive place with the Lord, a passionate place with the Lord. Open your hearts to worship. Open your hearts to praise. Open your hearts to the Spirit. Allow your spirit to be stirred. And we do tug on you. We do want that. Because we believe when you allow your spirit to be provoked... God can do great and mighty things through you. That's why we tug on you. Not so we can have a good old Holy Spirit time, but that we can tug on you and say, allow your spirit to be provoked so that action like this can result. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. I was talking to a mom this week, and she said, my daughter's been listening to those Shine Your Light sermons, and she said, she emailed every kid, every girl in her class and invited them to a prayer meeting at school. She talked to an administrator and got a room for it and 15 girls responded that they're coming to the first meeting. Allow your spirit to be stirred. Allow the teenagers to lead us, right? And allow God to use that upset to spur great things for the kingdom because he will win people to Jesus if we open our hearts to him. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, if we're stirred up by the news, may we ask you, what would you have me do? If we're provoked by a post, Lord, is our response to send a challenging post into the ether or to recognize that that post is indicative of people we know in our workplace and in our families that need to know Jesus. Lord, if we're upset at the things that are happening, I pray that you would turn our hearts and spur us into action. For Lord Jesus, we do not know the day or the hour of your return. For some, that will be a great and glorious day. And for others, it will not. Remind us, Lord, that you've given us life and breath, that others may see that as a glorious day. Spur us to action, Lord, for you are the Savior of sinners and the soon-returning King. I feel like we should pause. Perhaps there's a few here that would say, Pastor Matt, I've been upset for all the wrong reasons. And I need my heart to be stirred by the gospel and the world's need of the gospel once more.
I just want to give you the space and the time to pray today and ask the Lord to produce that in you in this quiet moment. Would you just offer your prayer to the Lord and ask him to move you? Lord Jesus, take command of our spirits. May we see and understand through your spirit. And may we listen and move according to your voice. We pray all these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Would you stand today? I hope whether you're a member or a regular attender, you consider coming out and visiting with us tomorrow night for the annual meeting. As Pastor Otto talked about, I also hope you'll put March 10th on your calendar. We're really looking forward to seeking the Lord together, seeking that stirring and that unction in this place together through Pursue Night. And I also hope that you'll stop and say hello to somebody new or that you don't know before you leave this place. God bless you.